Rutgers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend. Welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG has over $12 million in online MTT caches, sports 35K plus followers on Twitch, and is such a poker legend, he had hundreds of viewers on day one. He's also a natural eight ambassador the always brilliant Brian Paris. When you listen to Brian speak without knowing his background, you might be fooled. He may seem humble, modest, and easygoing, but on the green felt, the dude is a stone-cold killer. Brian's path to poker greatness is very similar to so many other poker legends, including Jonathan Little, Michael Acevedo, Justin Bonomo, Scott Seaver, and Isaac Haxton through the card game Magic the Gathering. I don't know exactly what it is about magic that seems to produce poker kaijus, but as someone who has made it his mission to decode the recipe to poker greatness, magic the gathering is way too common of an ingredient to ignore. From magic, Brian went to home games with his high school classmates, to battling on the virtual felt, and he made the transition to becoming a professional poker player look pretty seamless from the outside looking in. In today's episode, packed full of greatness bombs with Brian Paris, you're going to learn the concept of anti-fragility and why it can be your poker superpower, whether or not Brian thinks investing into poker courses and solvers is worth it, life lessons from the great teacher that is poker, and much, much more. And before you dive into this episode with Brian Paris, I wanted to take a moment to let you know about my latest mini course, Neutralize River Leads. NRL is powered by Mass Data Analysis and is a pay-what-you-wish mini-course so that you can experience the power of MDA at absolutely no upfront cost. You can grab your copy by hopping on to my daily newsletter at ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash NRL. You'll also be the first to know when any new CPG course launches and have the opportunity to buy it at the lowest price it'll ever be. And now, without any further ado... I bring to you the great Brian Paris. Mr. Paris, welcome back on to Chasing Poker Greatness. How you been, sir? Good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the uh, invite. It's my pleasure, man. It's my pleasure. So what have you been up to since the last time we spoke? It's probably been about a year or so. About a year. Well, I have my best year ever in the interim, so uh, that's been good. Uh, with the lockdowns and everything, poker's just been popping off. So I had, uh, I had my biggest score ever last May, and then since then I had like four scores that were all biggest, bigger than my biggest score prior to then. So it's been a very a nice little uh, late career renaissance for me. Late career. Well, what's this late career business? Uh, we'll say we'll say mid career, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how like. I never really imagined myself doing something for like 17 years. And right. when I, when I think that like in three years, I'll be, uh, have been a professional poker player for 20 years. It kind of blows my mind. Crazy um, man. 
Yeah, it's yeah, so much so much time. So much time passes so quickly. Yeah. And the game's changed so much in those years too. I mean, the the level of play and just the entire ecosystem has completely changed like multiple times. Yeah, well, poker nothing, you know, after Black Friday everything kind of went just haywire and it's just been yeah, it's been a mess ever ever since then. What do you think has led to these record-setting scores over the past year? I think the Corona lockdown is a huge part of it. Just the um, the fact that there's so many more people, you know, stuck inside playing online. Um, I think I think that's like led to a large infusion of new blood into the game. Obviously, that's kind of winding down now, but the the after effects are still real. You know, once you get people used to the idea of like depositing money and playing online poker, I think they're they're likely to stick around for at least some degree. So I think the player pools have been. Uh, a lot larger due to that. I think that's the primary reason, but then also there's sort of a momentum thing where it's just when you're winning and, and the money's rolling in, you can, just, it's a lot easier to sort of detach yourself from like the immediacy of it all and just kind of make decisions as though you were studying and just as though, just try to make decisions as optimally as possible. And, you know, it's like, no matter how much you tell yourself that you're capable of detaching from like the underlying money, you know, there's always this like nagging voice in the back of your head, like, oh, I could bluff here, but that's like, if, if I'm wrong, it's going to cost me X amount of money. And it's a lot easier to ignore that when you're, when you're doing really well. Yeah. That it's an interesting psychological effect that, you know, if you're just ripping off big win after big win after big win, you're much more comfortable, uh, you know, in your mind, uh, quote unquote, taking chances. Um, right. whereas if you're just getting crushed, doing those same things, you're a lot more hesitant to pull the trigger. Yeah. Yeah. You can know mentally that something is the right move. And then it's like, you know, it's going to cost you more money not to do it than to do it, but it's still, it's still hard to pull the trigger unless you have, you know, a lot behind, you don't have to worry about the the results and the short-term level. Yeah. Like what's the expression? You not only have to know what the right move is, you have to make it too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> be the hard part. That that is the hard part. Like once the emotions come into play, the adrenaline, the pressure, it certainly has an effect on decision making. H- have you been doing any studying, much learning over the past year that may have helped with your results? Yeah, uh, I've been doing DTO a lot, which is the uh, the app that you can study on, kind of on the go. And I'm a huge fan of that because with two kids, it's it's hard to set aside like dedicated studying time as much as I would like. So it's really nice to be able to just pull your phone out and like run a few sims while you're on the go. Uh, so I think that's actually been like a very like revolutionary study method for me simply because not, not because it's so much more in depth, but just because the ease of use makes it so much more practical. And tell me about DTO because I've had a, a few guests mention it. And I'm sure it's for MTTs, correct? Could you tell me like what the app actually does its purpose? Yeah. So basically you can choose a variety of different spots. So for example, you can choose like 60 big ones, button versus big one for like a, a basic simple one. And then it'll just give you random hands. You can play as either the button or the big one. It'll, it'll assign you random hands. Then you play through the hand. And if you make a mistake, it'll stop you. And then you can either look at the game tree or you can keep trying the hand over and over again until you get it right. So um, you can't, you can't like set up your own spots. What you can do is set up sort of the general parameters of a spot. Like if you need, if you need help on button versus big one, for example, you can just run that spot over and over and over again. And it'll just, it'll just play through a bunch of different hands and, uh, you can kind of understand like what the different bet sizings are, what the different, uh, you know, the reasons it chooses to check certain hands, bet certain hands. It, there's just a ton of information that can be gleaned and it's, it's very, um, user-friendly and intuitive the way it works. Awesome. So it's like a simulator basically. Right. Yeah. 
cool. Yeah. I, I've been wondering, I've heard multiple people uh, mention it. And again, it's just for MTTs. Uh, yes. The right now they just have an MTT, but cool. the, I mean, they, they do, most of the Sims are in chip EV. They also have ICM Sims as well. So like, I mean, I'm sure you could learn some stuff about cash games by running, but cash games are sort of under different assumptions. There's no anti and there's like a penalty for defending your big blind. So the, the cash ranges tend to be a little bit different. So I'm not sure if they have any plans to add a cash module in the future, but for now it's just MTTs. Well, that's okay. I'll break, break a little bit of news for the chasing poker greatness listener that we have our own uh, cash game simulator in development with all of my stuff to train in, in a very similar fashion, because I think that that's, yeah, it's the best way to train poker is just going through simulations, getting reps in um, when the pressure is low so that, yeah, it just solidifies in your brain um, and you can execute more easily when you're in it. Right. Yeah, um, just having the repetition is great. I mean, it's, it's not as good for going as in-depth. You know, if you want to like really study a spot in-depth and learn what to do with all of your range and you want PO solver or something, but for just uh, like sort of reinforcing the fundamentals, it's very, very good to get a lot of reps in on DTO. Absolutely. Like just, I'm a kinesthetic learner personally, and that's what, helps me learn the best is doing something over and over and over again. So that's like my optimal way to learn in your poker career. Let's kind of go back almost decades now to make us both feel fairly old. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who's your biggest influence in becoming a poker professional? Well, I started a long time ago back when all the, uh, you know, the guys on TV and everything were, were running stuff, the full tilt crew, but I don't know if I ever really looked up to any of them. I think Sean Deeb was actually my, my um sort of online idol back in the day and uh, i would i still have a tremendous amount of respect for him i think he's got a very good mathematical mind for the game guys just incredibly intelligent and he was one of the pioneers of sort of the online mtt scene so i I definitely was kind of looking up to him at the beginning i never never really like idolized like the live crew the same way that a lot of the other up-and-coming poker players did Sure. Um, just like entering the space, like w- how did you enter the space? Like, was oh, it like seeing rounders, it on, you know, the, the usual <laughs> like 2002, 2003, we all, all my friends and I, we'd watch rounders and we'd play home games and stuff like that. And, yeah. You know, that... I, I always was a gamer. Like I, I played uh, a lot of magic growing up, you know, the card game. So I was, I was used to the idea of card games and we played tournaments and they, they had like magic tournaments as I was a kid. And obviously the prizes are nothing compared to poker, but just the idea of like, playing a strategic card game competitive for money was always very familiar to me. So when, when poker came along, I was like, Oh, I guess I'll try this. You know, I jumped right into it. Like very, very enthusiastically. Yeah. It's like Matt magic is the introduction. You know, I, I think like so many people come from the world of magic and come from the world of just playing other strategic card games. And then they kind of stumble across poker and right. it's very similar in that there's depth, there's strategy, there's complexity. That sort of makes sense automatically. And then when you pile on top, well, oh, you, you can actually win money <laughs> by <Right. laughs> developing your skill playing this game. That's where, you know, that's the real hook of oh, yeah. poker when you're young. So could you tell me the story of your favorite poker session ever? Maybe not number one favorite, but you know, the first memorable session that kind of springs to your mind? I think it was when I beat Sean D heads up in the brawl in 2009. Um, I was in Vegas. Uh, we were could back, it was back before Black Friday, obviously, so you can play online from Vegas. And um, I, had, I had to take my friend to the airport that morning and there was like a big traffic jam and I started my Sunday late and I was all tilted. So I came out and I was just playing like super aggressively, just firing really hard. 
And then before I knew it, I was at the final table of the Sunday brawl, which is a big major back in those days. It was, um, you know, 80 something thousand for first. It was full tilt, second biggest Sunday major. And uh, I got to the final table and Sean D was there and, you know, we were battling like, and we got down to three handed and then eventually we got heads up. And uh, I had a slight lead. I was up like 3.2 to 2.8. I remember the stacks and everything. And I offered him an even chop because I knew he was better than me. And he just typed LOL in the chat. And I was like, all right, well, fuck <laughs> you, buddy. And then I beat him like 15 minutes later. And all, all my friends were there. We were all outside in the summer in Vegas, just like in the backyard. And it, it was great. And that was, that was my first like, you know, sort of career forming online win. Yeah, not not only do you beat one of the more influential people in your poker career, but you also beat them after they type in the give you the old LOL for the even chop. I mean, he he didn't think I was very good, and to be fair, I wasn't. He, he probably was correct to turn down the chop. So you know, in, in hindsight, it's hard to be grudging, but at the time, it sure felt good to win that. Oh, I, I can certainly imagine. Um, <laughs> I still talk about it now. It's been twelve years. You know, we we both him and I have moved on to much bigger and better things, and it still it still sticks out for me. Does he have you? Do you have a relationship or friendship with him? I've met him in person a couple times, and like we we're cool and everything. It's I, I don't know how much he you know, thinks about me or anything, but yeah, it's, uh, he's, he's kind of in a different scene. I mean, he's playing like all these mixed games and playing like live and stuff. He's not really in the online MTT scene anymore. You still see him occasionally during the big series or whatever, but gotcha. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we weren't on like bad terms or anything. I met him in person after that and we were, we were cool. The opposite question now about least favorite poker session or just, you know, a day where everything just turns into a dumpster fire. Uh, well, we could go with the obvious one on Black Friday, but I think um, there was a a live tournament that summer. Um, it was the summer of Black Friday. After Black Friday happened, you know, I had a ton of money locked up on full tilt. And my plan when Black Friday happened was sort of go out and play the World Series like normal and just like, you know, go through the rest of the money that I had. And then after the World Series, I would just like relocate and get my full tilt money because full tilt hadn't shut down yet. So I'd, okay, I'll just get a Canadian address and it'll free up the money or whatever. Um, and then, you know, halfway through the summer, Full Tilt lost their license, so they completely shut down. So at that point, it looked like the money was just gone. So I was already like on a downer for the World Series, and then my Full Tilt money just up and disappeared. So I'm still playing the rest of the series. And so I'm playing like a $1,500 side event, and I had this massive stack going into day two, day three. Uh, I was, I think, like two out of 25 or something. And then this guy two out of me on the river for mountains. Uh, and then I wound up getting like 11th in the tournament and it was like 800 K per first. I had all of myself. It was just devastating. I, I can't remember anything as, as devastating as that. So like that year was sort of the, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows all right next to each other. Yeah. That's particularly brutal. It, just in the face of black Friday. Do you remember the, you know, the feeling of the WSOP that year with the other play, you know, MTT crew, because I have to imagine that like it's a pretty uh, pretty sad year at the WSOP. A lot of negative emotions. Yeah, it was a rough time, man. I mean, not not as many people had it as bad as I did, you know. Because most people, I went on like a huge heater on full tilt right before it happened. So like, I don't think people had as much money stuck on it as I happened to. But yeah, it was definitely like a lot of, especially after full tilt, like looked like they were just going to close down forever. It was a very um, uncertain time, very difficult. Yeah. And unfortunately, at least in the cash game streets, a lot of players kind of disappeared after Black Friday too. A lot of the guys that I played cash with, um, I would travel and they were basically trying to transition from online to cash. And then I saw them like one time and they were all online regs and then they just 
poofed um, into dust and got, I have no idea what they're doing with their lives now. There's a lot of that in the MTT community too. I mean, a lot of, a lot of guys right after Black Friday moved to, you know, Mexico or Costa Rica or whatever, and then they tried it for like a year or two and then they came back and never went back again. And I think, you know, if you go back and look at random MTT lobbies from 10 years ago, you see all these names, you're like, what the hell happened to that guy? What happened to that guy? You know, there's just, just the, the act of being able to stay in the game for this long is pretty impressive all in, in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard. <laughs> it, it, it yeah, was it's a, tough, it's a tough, and then there's no one to hold your hand either. If, if things get messed up, you know, I mean, you can get like backed or you can have a friend network or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's on you. Yeah. You I, I don't have to uh, make the most of it. I don't know what it says about us that we stuck through it, whether we're just kind of stupid or <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, just, gluttons for punishment but like i i do have a tremendous amount of respect for the folks that stayed in the game because it was a very very rough time there for a number of years and even in some ways it still is a very very rough gig oh yeah yeah it can be certainly when you think of pots one so let's instead of focusing on like favorite sessions do you have do you have any very memorable pots that you've won over your career like individual pots or like mtts well i guess we, we can say mtts uh i i come from the cash game side yeah, so it's like a little I, different, it's a little different yeah. yeah i'm trying to, i mean i've had streaks that have been tremendously memorable like right before black friday i had a i had a stretch where i i um i cashed for 10k plus like 13 out of 14 days and i was back when i was able to just play every day and you know i was in for maybe like four or five k buy-ins a day or whatever so it was just like super consistent as money just like hitting the cash machine every single day um and that that was right before black friday so they sort of pulled the rug out from under me when i was when i was peaking as far as more recently i mean yeah i don't know i've been, I've been playing so long that it all sort of runs together for me now like back in the day the stuff like the brawl was very memorable because it was like my first big score prior to that my first my first big score was like you know 30k i had a lot of like 30k scores and then that was the first it was close to 100 but yeah, nowadays, I don't know, man, P- people like give me shit on stream for not, for not being emotional enough. I'll, I'll win like, you know, hundred K or I'll get bad beat for like a couple hundred at a final table. And people just be like, what, what are you doing? You're just sitting there. Like, why aren't you showing any signs of emotion? It's just like, man, like I can't, you know, if, if I allow myself to, I'll, I'll like lose my mind. So there's, there's something to sort of like, once you get to a certain level of professionalism, it, it all just sort of runs together, I guess. Yeah. You get used to it. I mean, you get just kind of used to what is happening in the game and like it, it's just something where you just get hardened over time you you just experience so so many highs and so many lows that like if you were to feel the highs that you felt early in your career or the lows that you felt early in your career you would probably just go insane after yeah. such a long period of time right it's just you get used to the game, you get used to the experiences and that's just kind of the way that life goes, not just in poker, but in many areas of life. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, it's good training for other things too, because you know, if you, if you have like a mishap or like some accident befalls you and you lose a bunch of money through no fault of your own, you're just like, Oh, like, who cares? You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's nice training for like emotional stability in other walks of life. And just understanding that like, the results are the results and you're not always in control over the results. You can, you can only control what you can control. Poker's the great teacher of that oh, where, yeah. you know, people who are outside of poker will be like, you know, why'd you do that? Or maybe should I have done something else in this situation? And it's like, no, you did the best you could. You took the information as it came to you. You made the best decision you could make with the data you had. And then after that, like, 
the chips fall where they may. I, I mean, right. it's it's very easy to kind of like want to reconstruct a way to avoid something that you had no knowledge of happening. Yeah, it's it's uh it's it seems trivial to us at this point because we've been in it for so long. But that that is like a very important lesson that uh, people who aren't you know in the gambling world have to sort of learn the hard way sometimes. For sure, and I see it in my early stage students. Uh, they'll be like, "Could I have folded this hand earlier?" <laughs> and, right. and it's like, "No, you you can't even fold the hand on the river." Like you're trying right. to like reverse reality here with the knowledge that you gained when you lost the pot trying to like avoid the pain and sometimes you just have to experience the pain you don't get to avoid it yep yep i have to teach myself that all the time actually you know i'm always trying to like outsmart the game trees like oh maybe i can fold here because i think this guy and it's like every time it's just dude just trust the math trust the the you know the studying it's you do it for a reason absolutely um so as it relates to kind of the the negative side of poker, could you tell me about a poker lesson that you've learned through, you know, catastrophe, something bad happening, a uh, valuable lesson from, I call it a dark teacher. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one, one good lesson I think is to not overextend yourself because when things are going well, you, at least I have, have a tendency to sort of like start a whole bunch of new projects when I'm like in expansion mode, you know, or I'll start backing They're back in the day, not so much these days, but I would start backing people when I would go on heaters. And, and, you know, if, if you're not planning things, backing can be a very lucrative thing, but it's very different from your own action, right? Like you need to plan things out. You need to be organized. You need to like do bankroll management for multiple people, not just yourself. And I think that um, I had a couple of times back in the day where I would sort of try to start enterprises and then they would just kind of collapse around me as soon as things went South because I didn't have the right level of, uh, of focus and dedication to like multiple enterprises at once. So I think, I think it's important to, even when things are going really well, it's important to sort of like stay within yourself and and make the right decisions and not like let yourself get carried away. Absolutely. I mean, you're becoming a man- manager at that point, which is a, a different yes. skill set. And Very. there's a book called the E-Myth Revisited that is about small businesses and sort of the changing from, you know, you being the person who's executing with your skill set and then going from that to managing human beings who are executing on their skill set. Like it's just a totally different ball game. And unless you're organized and you have your shit together and all of that, it's just kind of inevitable that things kind of fall horribly apart. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a, learning your strengths. I think the longer you're around, especially when you're self-employed and doing your own thing, you know, you kind of learn what you're good at and what you're not good at. And you learn to sort of lean into the things that you're good at and not try to mess too much with the things you aren't good at. Yeah. You know, and also, you know, you have to learn, right? It's always a learning experience. There's always opportunities to learn and grow and you just have to be very, very open to yes. exploring the unknown, making yourself uncomfortable and just doing what needs to be done because at the end of the day, nobody's going to do it except for you. <laughs> like if you don't do it, shit doesn't get done. So you have to, you know, you have to just go through the the painstaking process of learning new skills and then doing the best that you can. Absolutely. It's good too. I mean, it's, it's a good thing to always be learning. You, you want to add to your, uh, you know, your, your talent stack. So you, it's good to get as many skills as you can, even if you only know them sort of superficially. Um, so that you can kind of combine them into something, right? So if you're like if you're like a decent poker player, a decent Twitch streamer, and a decent like YouTube content creator, you can combine all those things and you can make like a very lucrative profession out of it. Um, so it's good to acquire new skills, especially like 
in times when things are going well and you have the the luxury of uh, learning new skills, but it's, it's also important to sort of just like be well aware of what you're capable of doing and kind of like where you're at and be honest with yourself. Absolutely. It just creates a more resilient professional career too. The more things you know how to do well, because if you know yes. how to do a bunch of things well and not many people do, well, you're kind of the person that people come to when they need help, which right. can be a, a side stream of income. It can lead to you know partnership opportunities. It can just lead to a bunch of good things. So always be looking to improve your skill set just kind of across the board because like if there's one thing that i know at least in this space it's that poker players by and large don't always have their shit together <laughs> the, the very disorganized um procrastination is huge and so like yeah if you're somebody that can help them out with a skill set that is necessary and make their life easier yeah it just increase you know improves it, it gives you an out if things go poorly in your own career, if you need any sort of help or something like that. Yeah. You never know when the door is just going to get slammed on you for like what the exact thing you're doing right now. So it's always good to have like sort of related things you can jump to if if that happens. Absolutely. And and just from like a professional poker players uh, standpoint, you know, increasing your skill set, learning different games, learning different formats so that you have more opportunities, you have more options in case, like you said, one door gets slammed you have something else that you can kind of do if that happens. And I know that like I've experienced Black Friday and I haven't played live poker in probably five or six years like uh, on a high volume basis. But I know that like a lot of the cash games are going private, right? Like a lot of the No Limit Hold'em cash games are going private. So maybe you have to learn more about PLO. Maybe you have to learn some mixed games. Maybe you have to start diving into some mtts like you just always have to learn so that one thing kind of goes away you still have options yeah absolutely and uh, yeah especially for cash game players i think because a lot of the fish or the recreationals they they move on to different games you know maybe five card plo is like the flavor of the month or whatever and if you you're probably still going to have an edge on it against recreationals but you know it would behoove you to actually learn a few things about the game so you can like really know it yeah, and short deck too. Short deck caught short on fire, one, fire yeah. for a while. It's, it's, it's really huge. Uh, it's, it's getting increasingly big online. I should probably that's one I should probably actually be learning right now. Is is a uh, short deck? It seems like it's got a, a good future. And one of the one of the fears of like learning a different game, I think, is that when you know the complexity of like no limit hold'em cash or no limit hold'em tournaments, it's easy to feel overwhelmed about learning a new game because you're like, I I got to start over. Like (laughs) I have to learn everything kind of all over again. But the reality is like the less information that's available for that game, the your learning curve decreases, right? Your ability to gain an edge. Like if you understand good fundamental poker theory, if you understand kind of what's happening at the heart of poker then it's much easier to learn other games. It's much easier to have an edge, especially against recreational players that are just kind of lacking that theoretical background. Right. Yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah, a solid grounding in just like general poker theory is invaluable. You've survived preflop bootcamp. You've shot the fish in a barrel. Now prepare yourself for the feeding frenzy. A comprehensive strategy for gutting every fish in your player pool. Data-driven hero bluffs. Light calls.
called out and perfect value bets that are maximally designed to hurt some feelings. Feeding Frenzy. Available now at ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash Feeding Frenzy. Over your career, what would you consider a weakness you've had? And then what steps did you take to overcome that weakness? So I, I always, um, I, I loved playing a lot more than studying. I mean, that's still the case, I think. Not, not as much these days, but for a long time, you know, I would just play and I wouldn't really study. Um, and that was fine at, at first because the studying resources weren't really what they are now. And nobody really had a very comprehensive uh, body of knowledge about the game back in the day. So, you know, you, you could get by with sort of like learning anecdotally and sort of just kind of like learning what works and what doesn't and kind of experimenting a little bit. And then at some point, you know, I started to hit a downswing a little bit after Black Friday, like 2015, 16, you know, the game got tougher. People were actually studying. I wasn't, I was just kind of playing. And at some point I had to take her a step back and be like, look, I really need to like retool my game from the ground up here because I'm kind of falling behind and I don't, I don't know what the hell these guys are doing. And I'm just like in there battling every day without a, a great idea of, you know, what the parameters are that we're even fighting about. So I, th- I think at some point you had, I had to take, I had to step back and really like revamp my game from the ground up. I'm very happy with where I'm at now, but uh, that was a really important thing that I had to do. And I had to be honest with myself that like, you know, what I'm doing isn't working. I need to like really seek help and sort of learn the game the right way from the ground up. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad I did. Do you remember that moment, like how it felt realizing that like, man, I've, I, I need to put in more work. I am not sure that I have an edge against these guys anymore. Yeah, it was rough, man. I mean, because I was, it, it, I was, I was doing all the EPTs. You know, I was going around all the different stops, and I was selling action and stuff. So it's kind of easy to like paper over short-term losses. But after a while, it's like, look, like you're not winning. You haven't won in a long time. And I remember I was sitting at a table, some final table, <coughs> with me and two other regs, and someone made a comment that I was on like a 200k downswing, and I was like, Jesus, really? Like I didn't even know. And I went and looked, and I was like, Wow, like he's he's not wrong, you know. And um, it, I was like, I, I need to get my shit together because I, I always had a very high ever since you know the black friday era when i was i was top 10 i was crushing prior to black friday i had a very high conception of myself and i had to sort of like update that and be like look like you're not actually one of the best right now you need to sit down and study until you can you know honestly call yourself that again and uh it's it's important to be able to have tough conversations with yourself like that you, you can't like have too fragile of an ego you know you have to be willing to be honest about where you're at with your game and the steps you need to take what steps did you take? Like what, what was the plan for getting to, you know, the new and improved Brian Paris? I went and got back for a little bit because it came with coaching. Um, and so, you know, at, at first the stable was doing their own coaching and then eventually they farmed it out to BBZ. So I was getting lessons from him and it was getting paid for him, put on my backing deal. And uh, I think working with BBZ was just like life-changing for me because, you know, I, I, I I'm capable of, like learning a new framework very quickly and and applying things correctly within that framework, but I need someone to give me the framework, you know? So he sort of sat down and was like, look, like these are the way the preflop ranges are these days. And, you know, here's like the different, you know, defense frequencies you have to meet and why and all this stuff. And we, we just did like a lot of deep statistical analysis until I sort of realized like what I was doing wrong. You know, of course I'm still doing a lot of things wrong. It's a very difficult game, but now I, I think I have a much better idea of, what I'm really trying to do. So I think, I think just sort of sitting down with him and reestablishing the framework from the kind of the ground up was very important for me. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting to me. And I, I had this thought the other day that like the better you are at poker, 
the more value you get from coaching and training yes. resources, because you fundamentally understand kind of what's going on there, what, why this is the way that it is. And then you're able to execute it much better. But then ironically, players who are playing at a high level sometimes don't invest into training or they don't invest into coaching because they are playing at a high level. Right. So it's like this thing where like the best players value the most. And yet those players don't always seek out those resources. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're, if you have a good hourly from playing, it's very tempting to just just keep playing, you know, like why, why do anything else? But yeah, it it is really important to always be learning new things. And because I mean, this game is tremendously complex and we're all still miles away from playing as well as, you know, one of those, like heads up AIs or whatever. So I, I think it's it's very important to have a humble mindset and just always always assume that there's more things you can learn. Yeah, and I've mentioned it before on the show, but it's kind of like the pot odds, right? It's pot odds model of you invest whatever it is. It, I think at some point it doesn't really matter $500, $1,000 for something that can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars over time. Pot odds just says click call every time. And then you buy $10,000 things. One of them makes you 500 K. Well, you know, that's pretty good pot odds in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But the other thing is you have to really put in the work too. You can't just like go out and buy a bunch of courses and just have them sit there and assume that they'll make you sure. better by osmosis. You know, you have to actually sit down and really, really put in the time to learn it and, and learn new things and everything. Yeah, like books on the bookshelf that you never read. You you actually right. have to go through the material to learn them. It's not good enough just to have it sort of hanging out in your collection. Right. What would you say is a, a common assumption that people make about their poker careers that you think they should spend some time thinking about? I guess just about how linear things are because, you know, it's, it's never as linear as you expect it to be. You're, all, you're always like, okay, this is my win rate. This is about how much I can expect to make every year, but the conditions are always changing so much. And it's really important to be very flexible and sort of like anti-fragile uh, as far as being able to adapt to changing conditions because you really never know. So um, one example I like to use is like after, after the supernova elite thing, they pulled off the super, they pulled the rug out from under the supernova elite players. And suddenly there was this massive influx of new sit and go and cash players and MTTs. And, you know, they had always been sticking to their own games before and they left us MTT donks to just kind of do our own thing. And now suddenly all these guys who are like very well studied, very intelligent, very serious players, all just flood into MTTs and start dominating. And then the game got like way tougher overnight. And I think that uh, being able to recognize changes like that and sort of, understand when you have to reassess your entire business model. It can happen frequently. Uh, it's just very important to be flexible. Yeah. And as a poker community, we have this obsession with like win rate and hourly yes. rate. And the reality is you really never know what your win rate actually is. And if you're the same player on like hand number one, as you are hand number 300,000, um, like in your graph, you haven't learned, you haven't progressed, you haven't done anything, then like you're doing something wrong, right? Like you should be regularly progressing and improving as a poker player so that like you have this graph of 100K hands and well, it's not really representative of who you are now because you're much different from hand number one than hand number 100K. Yeah, absolutely. You just got to release control, do the best you can. And again, let the chips fall where they may. I know that's kind of scary for a lot of people, but the reality is like you have way less control over things than you would like to. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's and true no matter how long you've been in the game. It's, it's tempting because everyone wants to like, people like to have control over things. You know, they want to pin down their win rate and how much they expect to make in a year or whatever. And it's just, it's just very difficult. Yeah. It, it's just impossible really. And 
set those expectations. That's really a thing you do that will cause you to be fragile. Like I think expectations create fragility and you, you mentioned the word anti-fragile, which is really cool because I, in the last conversation that I had on CPG, I talked about anti-fragility. Tell me about that word, what it means to you and sort of, you know, break it down for the listener. I I got it from uh, Taleb. I assume that you're familiar, but um, the, the, basically the idea is that something that's anti-fragile is something that can gain from chaos rather than losing from chaos. Uh, So you know, the, it, it's it's ideal, like mo- most systems are somewhat ossified and, and when they're put under changing conditions, they will uh, suffer. But if you're anti-fragile, you can you can adapt and you can change when, when the conditions become chaotic and you can actually gain from them. Uh, so one example, I don't know how much it actually applies to poker is sort of uh, when you grow a tree inside of a, a greenhouse, there's no wind. And so the tree trunk will become very fragile and it won't, it won't have the same level of strength that it has, the same level of robustness that a tree that grows outside that has to suffer through wind and constantly be changing wind patterns will have. Uh, you have a similar thing if you're like constantly training all the time on a treadmill versus training on versus running on like real ground because there's no variety on the treadmill. So uh, the more you can replicate these conditions where you are uh, exposed to chaos, the, the better that you'll thrive under those conditions. And uh, I guess the, the poker equivalent is simply just you know, just to set yourself up to be, just have a variety of different things going on so that if the conditions change somehow, you can, you can, you can jump to a new game or you can, you know, start a new in- enterprise and you can take advantage of the way the conditions are changing. Yeah. And for the opposite of that, the fragility, the example that Taleb uses in his book, Anti-Fragile, that I remember and resonates with me is like a coffee cup is fragile because when chaos is introduced to a coffee cup, it, it, it does not its state deteriorates right to many small pieces and then it's just kind of broken forever right so the opposite right. of that is when something's introduced to chaos it gets stronger um and something that I, I like to think of as it relates to anti-fragile is like lifting weights right like your yes, yes. your muscles are your mu- muscles are getting used or the fibers are getting torn and then after they're torn they get stronger over time so just another si- sort of uh example of anti-fragility and I, th- I think a lot of poker players who are like overly specialized can become excessively fragile. You know, if like, if like all you know how to play is six packs hypers, you know, the ICM inside and out, you know, all that stuff, but you never learned like any sort of format deeper than 15 big blinds or anything like that. Then, then if the hypers dry up, you're not going to have that body of knowledge to be able to move to a different game. So I, th- I think having a little bit more of a, a well-rounded body of poker knowledge can benefit you more than becoming overly specialized too early. For sure. And, and really putting in place multiple streams of revenue too, or I think that kind of helps reduce the fragility of your career, right? Like you said, you went on a 200 K downswing. Well, like that's rough (laughs) and that's a lot to deal with. But if you have other streams of income coming in from various sources, it's still tough and rough to deal with, but at least you can count on something, right? Like this, this lifestyle, having, having alternative streams of revenue is just so important for a professional poker player, because like, you are going to have times where, you know, it's a famine and you're not feasting. And so having something to count on, even if it's whatever, three, four, five thousand dollars a month can be huge. Absolutely. Over this past year, what's a purchase you've made that's been impactful to your poker game? And doesn't necessarily have to be like DTO software or poker related, could just be, you know, a nice chair. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the easy answer is DTO, but we already went into that a little bit. So um, I'm trying to think of something else. Uh, just, just upgrades to my uh, playing setup have been really useful over the years. I think some people sort of don't invest the maximum amount into their setup. And I think that's kind of silly. Like you're you're working on it so much and you're there's so much money going through. I think you should have like top of the line, everything, like the biggest monitors, the best CPU, all that stuff. And if you consider the uh, amount that you're paying for those things relative to the amount that you put in, in buy-ins each day, at least if you're playing at a sufficiently high level, it's, it's just really silly not to. So I think, I think that's something that I've uh, sort of grown more indulgent of myself over the years as far as uh, just getting like really nice monitors and, and nice uh, setup and everything. And how, how much money would you say is necessary to set up, uh, just have a really good setup for playing poker? It's not that much. I mean, you can do it for under 5k. Like my CPU cost me maybe like 2,500 euro and it was just top of the line. Everything when I got it, it was um, a couple of years ago, but uh, <laughs> relative to the amounts that you're doing, I think you, you can have a very nice setup for less than 5k. Yeah, I think my CPU is 2500 as well. And best thing that I've purchased by far in the last year and a half, just it's amazing. Like I will never again have a computer that I have to wait on it to do stuff. Like it's just right, such right. a relief. It's so annoying when things crash. It costs you money. Like especially if it crashes in the middle of a hand. I mean, if it crashes once in the middle of a big pot, that can cost you hundreds of dollars. It makes it makes a ton of sense to to invest in good setups so that doesn't happen sometimes thousands of dollars like yeah, it, if it's if it's a bad moment right so like yeah be sure to invest in your your poker setup um i had a friend who uh who was on a, a was quick quick anecdote a friend who was visiting me um he was on a big downswing you know and, and he made the final three tables of the scoop 1k and the scoop 1k main it's like i don't know a million dollars for first or something it's just a huge amount of money and his laptop died for an orbit with with three tables left in, in the scoop and it's just like that's so stupid i mean you you're, how can you let that happen when there's that when, there, when you're playing for that kind of money potentially how can you have a technical problem for something so simple and it's going to cost you potentially so much money it's just like a ridiculous thing to allow to happen but you know this kind of goes back to what you're saying about poker players being like procrastinators and disorganized and stuff it's it, it makes sense to sort of shore up your basis so that you don't put yourself in a spot like that yeah it's just planning right like i, I think a lot of times the trap is like you only need something to be really good when you really, really need it to be right. good. <laughs> and at that point, it's too late. Um, too late yep. So yeah, it's just kind of planning in advance. A little anecdotal story for me is like Starbucks forever. I would go to Starbucks. I would stand in line. I would watch enviously as the people would walk through the door and just grab their little to-go stuff that's just already prepared because they ordered on the mobile app. But while right. I was there, I was like, well, I'm already here now. I'm not going to download the app. But that was the only time I thought about it. So it took right. me like six months to finally download the stupid app and make an account. And then when I did it, I was like, that took me five minutes. Like, what is wrong with me? Like, why didn't I well, do I'm not sooner? the only one because I do stuff like that all the damn time. I've gotten better about it with age. But yeah, it's... it's <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it it Ooh, frustrates but... me. But yeah, it's... Once you realize like how great it is on the other side, you're like, oh man, I'm so, so ridiculously silly yeah i've had many moments like that <laughs> um what's a poker related thing that other people rave about that hasn't worked for you and why do you think it didn't work other people rave about, i mean i guess i guess like table taming software or something that i've, I've messed with before and I'm, I'm not using currently just because it's kind of hard to integrate it with the stream and everything and all the different sites but you know, I, I can see the merit. I think I think that there's like a ton of merit to having table taming software. It's just for me that when it when it like misclicks once, it kind of outdoes the upsides for me. So I've I've kind of moved away from it in recent years. But in the past, I've been kind of experimenting with uh, 
you know, table management software and stuff like that. And I think, I think that a lot of people get a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah. One one of the things that I don't know why I can't do it, but like some of my students would like turn the money into big blinds in cash games. Oh, you don't do big ones? I I only do big ones. I I don't know why. I'm just like, I I can't, it doesn't feel the same to me. I want to see like, the pots being thousands of dollars. <laughs> and like, I just, yeah, sure. I, I had the table management where I'm like pressing three, five, seven, and nine for like various sizings at different points of the hand. But like, I don't know. I, I like seeing the money in play more than the big blinds. Yeah, I can see that. I, I think it's funny because people have their own preferences with that. Like I, I switched to big blinds maybe six months to a year ago and I cannot imagine going back now. Like I can't even play on sites that don't offer it. But, um, you know, for a long time, I was just playing in chips too. And it's one of those things that like, once I tried switching, I was like, whoa, what the hell was I doing? I, I don't know. I can't imagine ever going back. I think it's a little different in MPTs because the the blind levels are so widely, wildly disparate in MPTs as opposed to cash, you know, presumably all your tables are the same buy-in or at least like within a, a range of buy-ins. But MPTs, you know, you can have one <laughs> one table where the big one's 100K and one table where the big one's like 200. So it can be difficult. Yeah, I think if I were playing MTTs, I would move it to big blinds where it's changing at the various tournaments that you're in. It's hard to keep up. You're having to like do math in your head, but right. how many big blinds you have, it just saves you a lot of energy. But if you're like, you know, just four tabling two K and L then you don't need to know all the blinds are always the same. That makes a lot of sense. I think what are some things you wish you had said no to more often in your poker career? Uh, backing arrangements, which is a big one. Um, when I was younger, you know, I, I used to like, whenever I go on a heater, I'd try to back all my friends and be like, look, I can teach you guys to do things the same way as me. And it's like, you know, to, back in the day, maybe that was true a little bit, but it, it became increasingly less true. And at some point you start to realize that you have, you possess unique strengths that other people might not possess. And it's not as easy for other people to learn poker at the same level that you have. Um, so I think that's a big one is just kind of like, overextending earlier in my career. I've gotten a lot better about it as the years went on. You know, nowadays I'm, I base, I have a couple of like really small backing range of people that I trust like greatly and they're playing like pretty small stakes, but I think that was a big one. Why did you enter into those backing arrangements back then? Was it monetarily based? Was it because you just wanted to help your friends out? Like some of both. I mean, it's, it's part of it's monetary. Part of it's just the the status increase, you know, like, cause if you're the backer, you're, you get like a status increase in the community. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a concrete way of like showing that you're successful and that you're able to share your success with other people. And, you know, I, it wasn't about the money for me. It was more about just like, yeah, trying to help people and trying to become the guy who was like, look, if you, if you need, if, if you need like a revenue stream, you can come to me and I'll help you learn how to play poker and, and do well at it, you know? And so I, I think for, I think a large part of it for me was that, and over time I've, I've grown to analyze things more through the, the lens of like, whether it's going to make me money. Cause you know, there's other ways to help people besides like putting up your money if you want to just help people. So yeah, um, I think that was it. I would say too, that like somebody that's not successful or doesn't want to put in the the work with their own money is probably not going to want to put in the work when they're playing with somebody else's money. Right. And that's just kind of a sort of an inherent issue with, with backing unknowns. You know, I think there are yes, a lot yes. of, there are a lot of opportunities to back people who have an established win rate that have an established record of success. And those are way better than just teaching a brand new person who's played poker very minimally over the course of their lives to like learn how to play poker. Right. Yeah, I think I think it was a sort of an artifact of like the pre-professional age, because if, if I think back to the way things were before Black Friday, it was so much less professional. Everyone was just 
you know, like playing with their friends and like drinking and smoking while they're playing. And nowadays everyone's in, in studying and they're in uh, stables and stuff. And back in the day, it was just a lot more amateur all up and down. So I think, I think the notion that you could teach like your college friends who you played other games with, like, oh, okay, this poker stuff's easy. I'll teach you how to play it. Uh, I think it was, it was tempting back then. And it might've even been true for a while, but obviously the game has gotten tougher over the years and things like that become increasingly difficult to pull off. Yeah, it's it's funny because like in the beginning, in the early 2000s, the mid 2000s and even the late 2000s, the age of the pros was so young, right? Yeah. Like we all just kind of came up in the game and there yeah. was no like existing framework or, you know, commandments of being a professional poker player. It's just a bunch of young kids all trying to figure out what the hell they're doing in this world and trying to figure out how to be a pro. And yeah, it's, it's obviously going to be amateur hour because you got to like 25 year olds that have millions of dollars that are just trying to figure stuff out. And it's like obviously going to end in disaster. And like over time, the game's kind of matured. We have these digital mentors people can look up to. People can just learn through, you know, the experiences of other people. That's not something that like we could really learn back then because these experiences wow. weren't widely shared. You know, you just you just did it on your own and then kind of went from there. And another interesting thing about online poker too is like as it relates to like morality or integrity issues, there was never like a baseline book on integrity and morals right. in the poker space. So again, you have a bunch of young, immature young men all trying to figure this out on their own, all living by their own sets of rules and guidelines. And you could just see how it, it was it was a situation that's ripe for all kinds of shenanigans and pitfalls and bad stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. A lot of, a lot of scamming and stuff going on back then too. Yeah. It was, it was a, a wild time and money was free flowing, but yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of pitfalls as well. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like the crypto space over the last few years. Yeah. Been... Similar, a similar crypto now feels a lot like poker back then. Definitely. Yeah. Um, the, the opposite question, uh, what, what are some things that you wish you had said yes to more often? I wish I'd uh, sought out coaching earlier in my career because, you know, I, I thought I knew it all when I was when I was doing well, like before Black Friday. You know, I, I, the notion of like going to someone and seeking out coaching was kind of just alien to me. I was like, well, I'm already crushing. Like, I, I should be coaching them. But, you know, the, the, just the idea that like there are people who can teach you things, like no matter how well you're doing, no matter how good you are, there's someone out there who can teach you something and you should be willing to seek that out and learn from it. I, I I wish I had taken more opportunities like that when things were going well earlier in my career to sort of like bolster my body of knowledge. Um, nowadays, I'm quite good about that. If I go on a heater now, I, I try to invest extra in coaching and get more courses and do more DTO study and stuff. But back in the day, I was I was quite bad about that. Same. I mean, what's funny is you can just look to other areas of life to kind of gain a superior model where, you know, Roger Federer has a coach michael jordan right, right. had many many coaches right and, and it's obvious that like if we're talking about basketball skill like jordan had more skill than everybody but yet he still had coaches that guided him and communicated to him and you know helped helped his career and poker players were no different like we all needed coaching we all needed help we all could have valued immensely from having just you know probably four or five different coaches helping us out and, you know, we just kind of arrogance and well, what, what are they going to teach me? What do I have to learn? I got it all figured out. I think out. part of it was at the beginning of poker, we had this whole gap between the live the old generation of live pros, like the pre-internet generation 
and you know the internet kids and and you know like the internet kids did honestly figure things out better than the live pros in many in many circumstances so back then the, the notion that like oh, i'm going to pay one of these like stupid live pros to coach me that's like ridiculous like they don't know anything right um but you know that as as online matured obviously that situation changed i think that mindset sort of lingered a little bit too long for me yeah i mean that's another part of it too is there weren't as many publicly available coaches back then either they they you, they were just hard, much harder and more much more well, difficult it was a to find. More uh, gated too, I think. If someone figured something out about the game, they were less likely to go around and like try to sell it as a coaching course. They're more likely to be like, oh, I figured out the exploit. I'm just going to go like hammer the tables and make all the money. Yeah. Luckily, luckily, the kids coming up today, they have a lot of options. So learn yeah. learn from these old dinosaurs' uh, past mistakes. And nowadays, you can you can learn as much as you want if you're willing to put in the work. You can learn anything. Absolutely. I mean, I, I used to think that I was special as it related to poker skill, that I had it figured out. I had a special gift that I could not communicate to other people. And as I've gotten older and more mature, I've learned that like, maybe I do have something special in that I enjoy problem solving. I enjoy critical thinking. And when I love, I love immersing myself into strategy. However, if you do the work, if you immerse yourself in a strategy and you follow guidelines and principles, you can also be a winning poker player. Like it's not this special magical skill that only a few people who are kissed by the poker gods when they're born are able to win money playing cards. Like it's something you can develop and learn if you want to put in the work. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, it almost be, like being able to learn is almost more important than like what your game is at right now, because, you know, the ability to quickly learn new skills and apply the information in a, in a relevant fashion is, is a more important skill than like whatever set of poker skills you currently possess. Absolutely. And that kind of segues into this, this next question. Have you ever strongly believed something about poker only to reverse course later on? Oh, and all, the so, time, yeah. all the what, time. What yeah. led to that change of belief? Uh, just more proliferation of solvers and stuff and understanding that I was wrong about a lot of things. I used to think like, for example, that like flooding the small blind was just terrible and you should never do it. And then, you know, these, these pre-flop ranges from MPTs come out and it turns out you're supposed to be flooding, you know, like 15% against steals or whatever. And it's just this huge chunk of my range I was missing for years. I just like sort of poo-pooed it and thought it was stupid. And there's, there's a whole lot of other like little things and hold them like that, that as solvers have caught up we've I've, I sort of realized that a lot of things that I used to think in the past were just completely freaking wrong and like I was doing other things well enough to make up for them but I think it's important to always uh, be open to the idea that like what you know could be wrong and new evidence may emerge and it's always important to like reevaluate your priors if that does happen and honestly a lot of times that's where the edge comes from right like right. your edge doesn't come from doing the same things that everybody else you're playing against does it's from doing things that are kind of foreign or that they may not be good at, or maybe they don't understand. And like, I found that even in the cash game streets where the blinds don't go up, it's a game that kind of stays the same, that there are areas to explore your curiosity and learn. And I'm pretty convinced that there are some strategies that people dismiss out of hand that over time will be proven to ultimately be more profitable than sort of like the quote unquote standard strategies that, the regs and the high level players deploy. Yeah, I can see that. Definitely. I mean, there's, there's entire paradigms that we might be just not even understanding. Sure. Um, you know, for an example, like uh, Dominic Nietzsche, the the guy who ran DTO, he's a like, very good MPT player. He, he plays a strategy in MPTs where he doesn't open normally. He limps or three and a half X's. 
and it's like completely different strategy, but he's worked out the ranges as such that like he's, de he's developed an entire limp strategy from the ground up for MDT and it works really well for him. And nobody knows what the hell to do against it because he's playing, this is completely different strategy. They never studied against. And so I think, I think that, uh, the ability to do innovation like that, you know, as long as you know what you're doing and as long as you're willing to like put in the work to actually figure it out, there's always going to be some sort of way to, to get around the established knowledge and find an exploit like that. I think. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's really awesome too, because like that was one of the, the points in the decision tree that I was specifically talking about in cash games, just like having a limp strategy, right? Because like the reality is that when you understand someone's preflop model and you study it and it's the same as everybody else's, well, you have a really good idea of like your three bet range facing UTG open when you're in the cutoff. And then they have a really good idea of their four bet bluff range. They have a really good idea of the hands they're supposed to defend. It's just, they know what they're supposed to do. And then when you face a model that is foreign, you're kind of trying to figure it out on the fly when the other player knows exactly what's going on and knows exactly how to respond. And that just puts you at a disadvantage straight away. Yes, absolutely. And I, th I think uh, it goes back to the sort of anti-fragility thing. A lot of, a lot of poker players study in such a way that they're actually very fragile because they're, they're simply learning, you know, the, the way you're supposed to do things. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, maybe you're going to learn those like better than everyone else. And you'll be able to like eke out those tiny little bits of value here and there. But, you know, as soon as, as soon as some parameter of the game changes, like let's say the anti, the size of the anti doubles or something like that, like everything's completely different now. And, and you're not going to know how to make the adjustments or like why you're making the adjustments unless you have a good solid understanding of all the theory that underpins it. Yeah. And then, you know, I had Mark Herm on the podcast and he just like is very anti-solvers yeah. <laughs> he just like yeah, he's, he's like the king of exploits yeah yeah and it's always refreshing to speak to guys like that because it, it like they know something that other people don't and they must right for their strategy to be successful over many years um and, and that to me is just interesting as it relates to poker because it's like you know there's more than one way to skin a cat we can always explore our curiosity and that's just what makes poker fun to me yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's great that someone can succeed and succeed wildly like that too. I mean, that's the thing people people don't look enough for exploits because at the end of the day, you are playing as humans, and even if they're sort of like vaguely aware of the things they're supposed to do, you know, they're going to mess it up, and you'll find exploits, and it, it's good to be able to to uh, take advantage of them when you find them. So, a couple more questions, and uh, we'll wrap up, man. What, what's a project that you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Uh, my friend and I are working on a sort of a mid-stakes module for um, MTTs right now. It's just going to be kind of a basic like review of uh, a couple of tournaments that we played deep in and then like some some knockout strategy and stuff. Nothing nothing too fancy, but it's, it's going to be aimed sort of at the more uh, like the, the mid-stakes level of, of player. So once that's out, I'll be I'll be showing it on my stream and stuff. I think that'll be a, a nice thing that hopefully some people who follow me will be interested in. So it'll um, be a course? Yeah. yeah. Do, we, do you have a price price yet? Uh, we don't have it's going to be on the lower end for, definitely on the lower end i don't i don't have the exact price in mind yet but it will be um we're aiming What's to lower end mean <laughs> i don't know i don't know what lower end means as it relates to uh like uh, training 50 to 100 dollars or something okay gotcha so that's yeah, that's so. very 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 affordable to that's anybody what we want, we want something that's more streets. like digestible and affordable and sort of just like an intro to the you know just the types of thought processes that we're going through playing these tournaments and i think that uh I want to be able to market it to my Twitch audience and have it be a, a price point that's not like, you know, only full-time pros will be interested. So that, that's something that my friend and I are, have been working on. Cool, man. 
Should be ready in a couple of months, hopefully. Yeah, excited to see that when it comes out. And whenever it comes out, send me the link to it and I'll put it in the show show notes so that the podcast listener can click through and check it out. Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely do that. Thanks. My pleasure. And uh, final question, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find more about you on the World Wide Web? The best places are Twitter and Twitch. I also have a YouTube channel, but I haven't been updating it lately, although I might I might go back to updating soon. But um, yeah, Twitter's where I'm most active and uh, Twitch as well. It's just D-Paris Poker on all the platforms. Awesome, man. It's great having you on. Let's do it again in a year or so when you have your course ramming and jamming and you know, you're, you're enjoying the success of this late stage of your career even more. All right. Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me and I will be happy to be back. My pleasure, man. Take care. Have a good one. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do. One man coach Brad Wilson has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R.